It's a classic mystery of innovation. This product didn't go mainstream until the late 1980s, early 1990s. And this seems silly, you know, in retrospect. And many people have, you know, written about this and thought about this, you know, from Nobel Prize winner in economics like Robert Schiller to Nassim Taleb. I found it quite obvious when I started looking into this story and it surprised me that people hadn't picked up on it before. What does it take for an idea to change the world? Maybe it starts with a light bulb moment, a sudden flash of insight. But having an idea and making a success of it are very different things. It's the difference between invention and innovation. In this podcast series, we've looked at the people and stories behind world-changing ideas. Some of them you might have heard of, some of them you won't have. Sometimes it takes decades of work to create what looks like an overnight success. Through these stories, we've aimed to illuminate how innovation really works in practice. I'm Tom Standage from The Economist, and this is Game Changers. Do you remember back when suitcases with wheels didn't exist? You had to carry your bags or lug them over your shoulder. They were always so heavy. Every day, I ask myself the same question. Why didn't anyone think of it sooner? Why do you ask yourself the same question every day? Because I'm that someone who had the bright idea. I'm Robert Plath. I was a pilot with Northwest Airlines... And in 1988, I had an idea, and so I tested it out in my garage, and then I patented it. I won't call it a success, because it was a revolution. Oh, very good. Wheels on a suitcase. Revolution. Get it? Yes, wheeled suitcases are everywhere these days, gliding silently through airports and train stations, or rattling annoyingly over cobbled streets in European city centres as they're dragged from one Airbnb to another. To think we actually used to pick up suitcases by the handles instead of pushing or pulling them. And for this revolution, we have Robert Plath, a former pilot, to thank. You heard him there, played by Harry Dean Stanton in the film This Must Be the Place. My name is Ophelia Silva. I am the chief growth officer for Travel Pro Products. Travel Pro was the company he founded to market his exciting new product. Travel Pro is one of the leading luggage brands in the US, and today we are the largest provider of luggage for flight crew professionals. So how was it that a pilot came to have the idea, one that seems obvious in retrospect, of sticking wheels on the side of a suitcase and adding a handle? And why hadn't anyone thought of it before? Bob Plath was a pilot with Northwest Airlines. His wife was a flight attendant. What motivated him was seeing both the airline personnel as well as consumers just struggle with luggage. I'll carry on item 
should now be stored securely in the overhead or under the seat in front of you. It was heavy. It was cumbersome. You know, the word luggage in itself <laughs> kind of identifies what the issue was. And in one of his layovers, he decided to just start sketching some potential solutions for what he saw. And his big idea was really to change the orientation of luggage from being horizontal to being vertical and adding two large wheels and an extension handle so that you could pull the luggage behind you. In 1987 was when he had his idea moment. In 1989, he built his first prototype. But Plath was worried that someone else would steal this brilliant idea. The luggage industry is highly competitive. So what he did is he built parts in different factories so that nobody knew what he was doing. And then eventually he put it all together in one secret factory. So he knew he had something special, so he was trying to protect it. And in 1990, he launched it, first of all, to his fellow pilots and flight attendants. And then he took the luggage to the first trade show. And that's when the luggage industry started to see it. So from there to the mid-1990s is where it started to be commercialized through retail outlets. To be fair, Plath's design wasn't actually the first wheeled suitcase. Another inventor, Bernard Sadow, had launched a wheeled suitcase with a different design in the 1970s. There was luggage with wheels before, but that luggage used to be pulled by a strap. And it hadn't really taken off, even though it had been available, I believe, since the 70s. Whether it was the 70s or the 80s, the question remains. Why had nobody thought of it sooner? Well, actually, somebody did. Honestly, the fact that a spotlight is being placed on my grandmother's suitcase at this point in time is just fun and a nice surprise. It was suitcase-sized. The handle was just straight up. They were retractable. In many ways, it's not unlike suitcases now, other than the fact that current suitcase wheels will swivel. Susan Vaughan is the granddaughter of Anita Willits Burnham, who lived in the village of Winnetka, Illinois, with her husband and four children in the 1920s. The structure they lived in was a, an old log cabin that she found on the outskirts of Chicago. We spent our summers with her in the log cabin. She was jolly and she was scatterbrained, which is delightful as a child. One day in 1921, they decided to travel the world. My grandmother uprooted the whole family, including my grandfather, who was an attorney. I don't know how he took the time off. So uh, there were four children. My mother, the youngest and the oldest, was 17 for the first trip. The first trip was one year and the second trip was two years. And they traveled fourth class all the way. They went all around the world. It does seem pretty unusual to me. They started out in Europe, but their travels took them to North Africa, Japan, Korea, China, India, Palestine, and what was then known as the East Indies. And it was Grandmother Anita's creative skills that paid the bills. My grandmother was a prolific artist when they ran out of money, which was frequently she would stop and paint and sell the paintings and they'd move on. Some of her artworks feature in the book she wrote about their travels, Round the World on a Penny, published in 1933. 
It's the story of their two trips illustrated by the family. It's delightful. In the uh, inset of the book, it says, round the world on a penny, why not? Doing what can't be done is the glory of living. While preparing for one of her trips in 1928, Anita Willits Burnham had an idea. She decided to add two wheels from an old baby carriage and an extending wooden handle to a suitcase. I'm sure it just came to her that why not throw wheels on it and add a stick handle. Hers was certainly a, you know, a marriage of convenience and creativity. On their return to America, Anita hit the road again, crisscrossing the country to promote her book. She would, you know, set up these engagements of schools and libraries and uh, museums and whoever would invite her to talk. She'd take the books. She was a wonderful storyteller. And that, that suitcase was her prop. That original suitcase can be seen on display at Anita's log cabin in Winnetka, which is now a museum. But she didn't try to profit from her idea. She wasn't a practical person. And I'm sure she was told a thousand times afterwards, why didn't you patent it? Even if she had tried to commercialise the idea, though, it's not clear that there would have been a market. It turns out that there are several more examples of people who invented wheeled suitcases but failed to commercialise them. Alfred Krupa, a Yugoslav inventor and artist, made one in 1954, for example. In America, several inventors of wheeled suitcases filed for patents in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, including Xavier Mastrantonio, Arthur J. Browning, Barnett H. Book and Clarence F. Norlin. In Denmark, Helga Helena Foger and Hans Thomas Thompson patented a suitcase with retractable wheels in 1972. So the idea had been around for a while in various forms. But you might be surprised to learn just how old this idea really is. Because the relationship between wheels and luggage may date back to the origin of the wheel itself. My name is Richard Bullitt. I am an emeritus retired professor of history at Columbia University in New York City. Richard Bullitt is the author of The Wheel, Inventions and Reinventions, a history of the wheel published in 2016. Around 3000 BC, you had a burial in Mesopotamia that was unearthed, and it was the tomb of a king. And um, now called the Royal Standard of Ur. It was the city of Ur in lower Iraq. And it showed vehicles on the sides, war vehicles. Some archaeologists, they said, well, civilization of lower Mesopotamia was so brilliant that that must be where the, the wheel came from. Mesopotamia is often called the cradle of civilization, and around 3000 BC, the Mesopotamians were busy inventing important things like writing, cities, and the mass production of beer. So it was long assumed that they must have invented the wheel too. But the latest archaeological evidence suggests that the wheel was actually invented in Europe. My view is that it began in mountainous areas where copper was mind at the beginning of the late Copper Age, probably in the Carpathian Mountains, uh, up in the borderlands of uh, Poland and Ukraine and Hungary, and the earliest actually existing wheels that have ever been found archaeologically 
are found in that area, not in Mesopotamia. People mining copper ore in what is now Central Europe would have found wheels very useful. Ore is extremely heavy. So how do you move this heavy stuff in a confined space? We have some images that suggest that baskets and trays were used to slide the ore along in front of a miner, perhaps on his hands and knees. And I think that in the Carpathians, somebody had the idea of putting wheels on the basket. And so that the beginning of the wheels in that case would be four-wheeled baskets that were needed because they were carrying a very heavy load. So wheels were originally invented to make it easier to move boxes full of stuff around. They first appear on what is, in effect, a 5,000-year-old Carpathian wheeled suitcase. And the wheel itself, says Richard Bullitt, took a surprisingly long time to catch on. The Egyptians knew about wheels from the Mesopotamians next door, who'd presumably got the idea from Central Europe. But for centuries, the Egyptians weren't interested in using wheels. They built the pyramids entirely without using them. So why didn't wheels catch on more quickly? The history of wheels and the history of roads cannot be separated. Wheels were not a very clever invention for moving things unless you had total control of the surface the wheel moved on. This is surprising if you're used to the notion that the wheel is one of the greatest inventions in history. But that turns out to be quite a recent idea. If you look at people in the 19th century asking what is the greatest invention in history, they normally say the steam engine because that is what was revolutionizing life in the 19th century. And I haven't found anyone before 1900 who thinks the wheel was the greatest invention. For one thing, traveling on a wheeled vehicle was really a pain through most of the history of wheeled vehicles because the, the wheels broke, the axle broke, the road was so rough you turned over. Riding on the early trains was sort of a torture for your butt because you were bouncing up and down as you went along every link in the rail. So one reason why wheels and the wheeled suitcase took so long to catch on was that the world just wasn't flat and smooth enough for them. You know, try and pull a wheelie suitcase across a lawn. It's difficult. Brick is hard to roll over. You have stone surfaces, gravel surfaces. You can't use the tiny wheels on any of those. So the whole history of the small wheel is a part of the history of the rolling surface. OK, but developed countries had pavements in the 20th century and smooth floors in railway stations and airports. Yet it still wasn't until the 1990s that wheeled suitcases caught on. So there must be something else going on here too. But what is it? The technology of the wheel is 5,000 years old and we didn't get wheels on suitcases until 1972 was the first sort of commercially successful patent by an American called Bernard Sado. We didn't come up with this very, very simple solution until, you know, a few years after we put two men on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. It's almost a cautionary tale that, oh, we might sort of focus a lot on these complex solutions, but we overlook these really simple innovations that can make life a lot easier to us. 
Katrine Marsal is a journalist and author who has her own explanation for why this seemingly obvious idea was overlooked for so long. I'm the author of Mother of Invention, How Good Ideas Get Ignored in an Economy Built for Men. The thesis is that innovation is often being held back in the economy because of our ideas about gender. The slow adoption of the wheeled suitcase is a prime example. I started stumbling upon these pictures in newspaper archives of actually women rolling suitcases with wheels well before it was invented in the 1970s. Most of them, not all of them, were sort of these niche products for women. And they didn't really sort of catch on. But there was this very strong idea that no man would ever roll a suitcase. And this is even something that the official inventor of the rolling suitcase, Bernard Sader, talked about in interviews. He did say that the reason that American department stores first didn't want to carry this product was that there was this macho feeling that a real man has to carry his own bag. And that was actually something that even he fought against. In other words, real men carry their suitcases and wheels are for girls. Oh no, I'm mansplaining, aren't I? You can even see it in sort of popular culture when this product emerges and how it's seen as slightly silly, something for women. This uh, film with Michael Douglas from 1980, something romancing the stone, where he is in the jungle with Kathleen Turner and she insists on bringing this suitcase with wheels. And the whole joke is that this is obviously a very silly female thing to bring to the jungle. You got any valuables in that suitcase? No. Yes, all my clothes and things. Uh, you got an umbrella? No. You got a good pair of walking shoes? They're all like these. Uh-huh. There you have Joan Wilder, this New York City, Upper West Side romance novelist who ends up in Columbia to rescue her kidnapped sister. She becomes a kind of luggage to him. Like he has to drag her to the next town. And she has one of those rolling suitcases and he sort of chucks the suitcase over a cliff or over a ravine. Susan Harlan is a writer and researcher from North Carolina working at Wake Forest University. She wrote a book called Luggage and is interested in the way our bags reflect our ideas of gender. This idea that women would bring all this stuff with them to kind of recreate their home or or, or hold on to their home. One thing that comes to mind is Mel Brooks's 1987 Star Wars spoof, Spaceballs, which is a movie my sisters and I used to watch a lot. And there's a scene there where the kind of hero figure, the kind of Han Solo figure in this spoof is dragging Princess Vespa's matched luggage. It's called Her, Her Royal Highness's Matched Luggage through the desert in this kind of Lawrence of Arabia type scene. And he has this huge trunk and he's wondering what's in the trunk. And it turns out that she's carrying around this huge kind of like Klaus Oldenburg-esque hairdryer. What's this? I said take only what you need to survive. It's my industrial strength hairdryer. And I can't live without it! Obviously it's a satire, obviously she's a princess, but there's still this idea again 
that she is this kind of frivolous, vain woman who's a bad traveler, who's a bad packer, who requires all these domestic objects to come along with her. The idea that we kind of value uh, really minimalist packing and people who pack light is sort of funny to me. I feel like it's like deciding that it's virtuous to get up early in the morning or something. But if luggage in general, and wheeled suitcases in particular, used to be considered unacceptably feminine, then what changed? Katrine Marsal again. I think changing gender roles in the 1980s did play a part. Business travel went from something that was almost exclusively male to something that women did as well. It was also largely marketed to women at first. I mean, clearly the male gender role was also changing in those years and that sort of made it possible for men to adopt this product as well in a way that they couldn't do two decades earlier, I think. In general, I mean, I think we've had a movement in large parts of the world where physical strength perhaps is less important to sort of prove that you're a real man than maybe other things. And when Robert Plath began marketing wheeled luggage to both male and female airline staff in the 1990s, that further undermined the idea that wheels were girly and weak. Now they were cool. He first started sort of marketing this product to airline crews who then were going through the airport with these new bags looking all glamorous. And they were women, but also male pilots, which people think contributed to this product suddenly looking more interesting to men as well. This may all sound rather trivial. Does luggage really matter that much? Katrine Marcel argues that this is just one example of a wider trend of technologies being held back to the detriment of society because they were considered insufficiently manly. So, for example, electric cars were invented already in the late 1800s. And one of the reasons that that technology didn't take off in the way that many of us now feel it should have was that electric cars were perceived to be more feminine. And that uh, held back the size of the market, because if something was associated with women, many male consumers didn't want it. As we heard in the first episode of this series, electric cars are now cool. So why were they considered feminine in the early 20th century? They were comfortable. You didn't have to get out of the car and sort of crank them going. You could start them from the driver's seat. They were more quiet. Electric car advertisements from the time depict women dropping their husbands off at the golf course or going shopping with friends. Babcock Electric marketed its cars as being suitable for wife or daughter, mother or sister. The automobile that women and children can operate with ease. Cole, another manufacturer, boasted that its electric cars were the choice of American womanhood. And some male buyers considered the limited range of electric cars to be a good thing. There was certainly this idea that, you know, what do a woman need a car for? Certainly not to sort of go off on any long adventures. It is quite interesting that the same year that Henry Ford launched the T-Ford, which was supposed to be sort of the car for everyone, he bought an electric car for his own wife. Might electric cars have caught on sooner if a Robert Plath figure had found a way to make them more appealing? We'll never know. But this idea that some vehicles are seen as emasculating and thus not suitable for use by men goes back centuries. Richard Bullitt again. Wheeled vehicles for moving people were not common 
unless you are moving women. The problem men have had throughout the world is how do they maintain their notion that women are their property who have to be protected? And one way to do it is to keep the woman in the house. But if you are going to have the woman go out, you don't want people to see her. So we have quite a number of medieval pictures showing wheeled vehicles full of women. The idea that the man would be in the vehicle was distasteful because a man of the upper status should ride a horse because fundamentally the king and his nobles were warriors. And getting into a vehicle, that was considered degrading. So there's this famous medieval poem about Lancelot, who's going in quest of Guinevere, and his horses are killed, and he has to get to where he can rescue the queen, and he gets in a cart driven by a deformed peasant, and he succeeds in getting to his destination, but then he's shamed for having ridden in a cart. And this disdain for riding in a vehicle kept the carriages pretty limited down to the 1500s, so that you might have, say, a bridal carriage, where you would deliver a princess or a noblewoman to her husband, but the man would always travel on a horse. The idea of the princess in a carriage who marries a knight on horseback persists in fairy tales to this day. So what made it acceptable for men to ride in wheeled vehicles? This changes in the 1400s, and the changes come from Eastern Europe, and that's because of the rise at that time of new uses for wheels in warfare. If wheels could be a significant part of warfare, then a man was not shamed by being connected with wheels. So when you had wheels put on cannons for field artillery, or when you had wagons that were armored wagons and you had men with guns inside the wagons, then a man could be noble and ride in a vehicle. So what does all this tell us? The story of the wheeled suitcase is a reminder that innovation is not just driven by the introduction of new technologies. The idea of a box on wheels is really old. As we heard in our episode on mobile money, new ideas can catch on very quickly when they meet a genuine need. But the wheeled suitcase shows how adoption can be hampered by social attitudes and prejudice. It wasn't a change in the technology that made the difference. Instead, the crucial change took place inside people's heads. It's a striking example of the way bias can hamper innovation. Katrine Marsal again. We tend to see innovation and technological forces as these sort of neutral, very, really powerful thing that's, that sort of pushes society and us and everything else in front of it. And, you know, when you insert gender as a factor, and as I try to do in my book, look at how, you know, really these random ideas about, you know, what's a real man, what's a real woman, they are affecting what innovations get funding, what innovations catch on, and they're really sort of shaping these forces of innovation and technology. 
we tend to sort of focus on traditionally male technologies and innovations. And I think this creates a situation where when women are sort of studying the history of innovation, we're basically studying our own absence, which makes it very hard for women to take on this role and this identity that, you know, I'm an innovator, I have an idea and sort of come forward in that way. And we know that women don't do that in the same extent. We saw a different example of bias in our episode on the use of graphics chips borrowed from the world of video games to speed up artificial intelligence systems. In that case, there was a prejudice against using gaming technology, which wasn't seen as intellectual or academic enough. And like the shipping container, the subject of another of our episodes, the wheeled suitcase is an innovation that seems simple and obvious in retrospect, but which had to overcome societal rather than technological obstacles in order to succeed. Finally, the wheeled suitcase, like the lithium-ion battery for electric cars or mRNA coronavirus vaccines, and indeed all the innovations we've considered in this series, was not invented by one person in a single lightbulb moment. In fact, I can't think of a single innovation in the history of technology that was the consequence of one person having a bright idea and then building it. Innovation is always more complicated than that. It's always a team sport. And it always involves the interaction between what technology can do and what society thinks it needs. You may have noticed that the logo for this podcast series consists of several jigsaw pieces that fit together to make the shape of a light bulb. But if you've seen the animated version, you'll notice that the pieces fly apart rather than come together. The light bulb explodes. And that's what we've tried to do in this series across six episodes to explode the idea of the light bulb moment as the sine qua non of innovation and to tell stories that show how innovation really works in practice. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed the ride. And if you did, please spread the word. Game Changers was a Tempo and Talker production for The Economist. The producer was Tom Pooley and the executive producer was Sandra Schmueli. I'm Tom Standage. In London, this is The Economist. Listener.